Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on Saturday, December 8, 2018. Today, I am joined by Mark Lippert to talk about U.S.-Korea and U.S.-North Korea relations. But before we get into the discussion, I want to tell you all about the NK Shop. NK News annual shop is back in business for the holiday season. Chad and the team have got excellent holiday gift ideas, including limited edition retro T-shirts, 2019 calendars, postcards, Andy Warhol-inspired canned goods posters, and vintage DPRK travel posters. In fact, I've just given a full set to Mark. They look pretty good, don't they? Excellent, excellent. Listeners to this podcast can get 10% off their entire purchase by using the code NKPODCAST10, that's NKPODCAST10, all one word, at the checkout. Just go to nkshop.org and see what's in stock this year. They'd make really great gift ideas for any North Korea watcher. All right, my guest today served as ambassador to the Republic of Korea from November 2014 to just before President Trump's inauguration in January 2017. Currently working in the private sector, Mark Lippert is also the former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asia and has served in a number of senior official positions, including as a Navy Intel officer in Iraq and Afghanistan. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, thanks. Great to have, uh, great to be here and really excited. Good to see you again. If I can quote from our good friend Stephen Norper of the Korea Society in New York, I am delighted to have you here today. <laughs> Absolutely delighted. You saw a lot during your time here. What was the most surprising or memorable thing about your term for you? Well, I mean, it was just an amazing experience for myself and my family. And I guess in terms of political experience, obviously you had the candlelight demonstrations. That was obviously a salient and memorable and significant part of uh, modern and Korean history. I think personally, uh, what is memorable for me is obviously the birth of my two children here, mm. both in Seoul, both at Yonsei Severance. Uh, and then finally, obviously, um, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the the knife attack that was mm. perpetrated on me. And that obviously was a significant issue as well. So soup to nuts. It was a pretty amazing uh, <laughs> time, pretty eventful time. And, I, you know, I just covered the surface there. There were multiple layers of interesting people, places, events that uh, I experienced while I was here. Actually, just on that, uh, during the uh, anti-Park Gunhair candlelight demonstrations of late 2016, uh, I think, didn't you walk around Kwang Homan with your dog Grigsby a couple of times? I did, but that was what we did almost every Saturday with or without the uh, candlelight uh, protests ongoing. Uh, Grigsby was fond of a, a cheapo stand uh, nearby <laughs> the residence, and he often dragged me into Guanghaman. Alternatively, we, we, we would enjoy uh, a hikes to Namsung, but the Guanghaman uh, events, and there was a couple of photographs that were taken actually well before the actual demonstrations that day, they mm. were much earlier in the morning, did cause some speculation about what we were doing there. And principally, we were there to get Grigsby some cheapo. Right. I think there was some speculation that either you were trying to show people that Seoul is a safe place to be, or you were trying to show the Park and her government that uh, the U.S. would not uh, support a, uh, a sort of a skull-cracking showdown with protesters. Well, obviously, uh, a principal tenant of United States foreign policy on an event like this is, first of all, non-intervention, sure. but, but coupled with, you know, in a free democracy that is governed by the rule of law, ensuring that the protests are peaceful and carried out in the, the highest traditions of Korean demo democratic practices. And, the, and it was amazing, given the size of the protests and the longevity, that they did remain, you know, 99.9% .9 peaceful. We didn't see anybody killed. You know, n nobody was uh, was 
filmed being beaten by police truncheons. This is about as far as... You, and we're only, what, 30 years, less than 30 years from the events of the Kwangju uprising in 1980. Well, and I think that the, the point that, that you're making is that separate and apart from the political significance in terms of Park Geun-hye and Moon Jae-in and, and the change of power here, there was... It was a test uh, in terms of Korean democracy and Korean institutions, which, as you point out, are relatively young. People mm. forget what a young democracy uh, this is. And I think underlying your question uh, is that it passed the test. And I think that that is a significant event uh, in uh, politi- recent political history here in Korea. And I realize now I should correct myself. It was more than 30 years. It was just under 40 years since the, uh, the events of the Kwanjo uprising. Uh, now, you also mentioned the incident very early uh, in your time in, in Seoul when you were physically attacked by a man uh, carrying a knife, or, or was it a box cutter? Was it anyway, some sort of bladed uh, implement? Uh, and it was a man with openly pro-North Korean sympathies, wasn't he? He, uh, uh, he wasn't friendly towards America. Did that incident, that attack, did that change your perspective on anything? Well, first, just the uh, the technical issue. Not to, he was carrying a knife, and I believe he had a box cutter as a secondary weapon. And oh. That's why there's always confusion about that point. Um, what I would say is, you know, it's easy to dwell on the moment, right? The moment was, it was a horrible attack, a horrible thing. It was awful. Uh, But I think what I choose to really focus on was that after that moment passed, the response from the Korean people, the response from United States officials, the response really from people far and wide on both sides of the Pacific, really, I think, brought out the the very best in people. And it was amazing to see. You saw uh, my bodyguard come to come to my aid. Uh, a a newspaper reporter run out into the street in a busy traffic to flag down a ongoing or a, a passing uh, police car. Wow. Police get Korean police getting me to the hospital. Korean surgeons patching me up. Uh, it, it was just I, I think very very uh, remarkable in terms of the cooperation. And then finally, what I would say, the outpouring of support and affection mm. was just amazing. I mean, and it. It would have been one thing had there just had this been, uh, you know, momentary. Yeah. I mean, it was it was intense. It was amazing, but it continues to this day. Wow. I still get people coming up to me. I still get people asking me if I'm okay. I still get people apologizing, wow. and I think it speaks to I think the the Korean people uh, in in many respects in that. When they support you and they respond to something, they stick with you for a long time. And, and it, like I said, it just, I think, underscored for myself and my family some of the very best things about Korea, some of the very best things about this relationship, and some of the very best things about human beings writ large in a world where you often hear reporting about bad things or cynical things. There are these moments in life that remind you of just how good and decent people can be. Is there anything we can draw from Koreans' response to that attack in terms of uh, understanding support or lack of support for the the extreme hard left in Korea, sort of for a, like a, a pro North Korea faction? I don't draw many uh, political lessons from this, to be honest with you. I I tend to view it as an isolated incident. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, you know, was the was the indi- the individual clearly had political motivations. He had attacked the Japanese ambassador mm-hmm. before, but I just don't think it was something that is indicative of a deeper political issue here in Korea. 
All right, uh, big picture stuff here. So looking over the whole of your time in Korea, uh, did your, your views on the, uh, on the Korean Peninsula or on the Korea-U.S. alliance or on the relationship evolve at all during your time here? Did you leave with, with different opinions than when you came? Of course. Uh, you know, I'm trying to reflect back on the spot about what those were. I think this is maybe a smaller but I thought important piece was that when I came in, you know, you get your briefing and I'd worked on Korea issues before in the Defense Department. I think this probably was a reason it colored my thinking. Mm. You know, you think you tend to think of the alliance in largely military terms right. with a free trade agreement. And I think what I took away from this alliance was that perhaps the most important, if not obviously among the most important elements that I just listed, is the people to people relationships. Yeah. And that base of grassroots connectivity coupled with popularity on both sides of the Pacific give the alliance a resiliency and enable creative thinking in ways that I had not understood as ambassador. Mm. The other thing I would say is that I also left here with a strong feeling that there are a bucket of critical issues that we've done some work on before that we can do a lot more given the deep expertise of our two peoples. And what are some of those issues? Cyber, space, global health, environment, energy, uh, the fourth industrial revolution, AI. That gave me a lot of, I wouldn't say hope, but just it made me realize that there is a piece of this relationship, piece of this alliance we don't often talk about that is probably a little underutilized that can be effectively leveraged and harnessed to really make this an alliance that is viable and a adaptive alliance well into the 21st century. What's the key thing or couple of key things for policymakers back in D.C. that they need to understand about the Korean Peninsula? I, first, I think that there are Korea experts in Washington and don't don't take this to mean that nobody understands these issues in Washington. There are there are a number of Korea experts who understand this uh, much better than I do. But what I would say is what is often most underreported or least well understood of what I would call sort of the, the key salient issues are the complexities and dynamics in the inter-Korean relationship. Uh, I, I think that People focus, uh, rightly so, on the denuclearization piece. They look at North Korea in terms of its often its actions in isolation vis-a-vis -vis the global stage, but tend to not focus less on the fact that there's a very special, interesting dynamic that exists between Seoul and Pyongyang that is critical to understanding the peninsula critical to understanding the relationship, and I would argue these days, critical to understanding denuclearization prospects. When Donald Trump was elected president, he ordered all ambassadors back to Washington without fail before the inauguration. A change in ambassadors, of course, is normal when a new president is sworn in, at least in many countries. But were you surprised at the speed with which this was carried out? Not at all. I mean, I'm a political appointee. I expected to leave in and around uh, January if there was a, especially if there was a uh, Republican president. And in fact, I was a political appointee in the in the Pentagon before the midterm elections mm. and was more than prepared to uh, turn in my badge, uh, pack up my office, uh, had uh, 
uh, President Obama had been defeated by uh, Governor Romney at that point. We had no ambassador, well, the United States had no ambassador at all in the Republic of Korea for about 18 months. What are your thoughts on that? Well, obviously, as an ambassador, I'd like to think uh, I'm, an, I'm an important guy, so the, the job matters. But all, all kidding aside, I, I do think that first, let me just say that I think Mark Knapper performed admirably and superbly as the charge charge affairs here as the acting ambassador, if Mm. you will, uh, and really, I think, did an excellent job managing the relationship in what was a very difficult time. Uh, Second, the other thing I would say is it's always a little bit of a risk when you have political appointees that you do, you could lose continuity in between a change of administration. I think there are big, in some cases, big benefits of political appointed ambassadors, often some who have direct relationships with the president, uh, so on and so forth. There are some, you know, but you have to realize it's a cost-benefit analysis and there are some downside risks to it. I guess what I would say is I do think that the ambassador here in Seoul is unique. It is a really important position. It is a it is a country that is really important to the United States, but because of geography and some other factors, isn't always what we say managed by capitals. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, often direct talks between the Blue House, White House, And the ambassadors, both in Washington and Seoul, play a critical bridging function that I would say is among the most important when you look at the global relationships the United States have. So I think the ambassador really matters here. And I think having uh, a competent, talented ambassador like Ambassador Harris here today is a very good thing and healthy for the relationship. Uh, If you were an ambassador now, do you think the job would be harder? Hard to say. I mean, really hard to say. Uh, You know, I would say that uh, I think you're onto something here in that you know, an ambassador is, I always say, a little like um, you're a little like a, a, a sailor, right, at mm. sea. You can be a great a sailor. Uh, you can be as proficient as any person in the world at, at driving the ship. But you are beholden at some level to the wind, the tides, the sun, the weather, the seaworthiness of the craft. And at the end of the day, those larger factors matter. I think it would probably be a little more complicated, I, I think, on the North Korea Piece. There are more moving pieces mm. on that. There's, you know, the inner Korean element. There's the denuclearization talks. There's all the allies. That that does seem a bit more dynamic than I was here. But we had a lot going on with on the North Korea front as well, just in terms of consultations with allies, dealing with uh, trying to align strategy. It's always challenging. Probably a little more dynamic than it was when I was here. But on the flip side, I think there's probably a little less going on in terms of some of those issues I mentioned before, global health. You know, we had the MERS outbreak yeah. here, uh, energy and environment, uh, the environment. We had the Paris implementation and treaty machinations on energy. You'll recall the Congress overturned the uh, ban on exporting uh, petroleum and condensate regulations were, were revised. So there were a lot of Issues that I don't think got a lot of a press here, a lot of press and media attention here, but were very dynamic uh, pieces in uh, the relationship at that time that required a lot of attention. So hard to say, would it be harder, more complicated? Hard to know. But I would say on North Korea, it seems a little more dynamic. But on these other pieces, it does seem a little that there's a little less machination surrounding that issue set. Uh, now, to touch on your um, your sailing analogy you just used, uh, did you know current U.S. Ambassador Harry Harris from your time in the Navy? I did. I did. Well, not well, not so much from the Navy. Okay. Although he knew I was a reservist, uh, I knew him uh, from my experience in the Pentagon. Ah. Uh, so he was the PAC fleet commander, and he was the uh, then PACOM commander when I had some uh, 
responsibilities that overlapped with his. Uh, he's been here uh, as ambassador for about five months now, oh, actually almost five months exactly. Uh, have you uh, any thoughts on how he's doing? So is he settling in okay? Seems like he's doing great. You know, I mean, and and I think what what he brings that is so important to this job is passion and energy. He's indefatigable. He's tireless. He's always out there. And, uh, you know, that's that's Ambassador Harris. And, uh, you know, when I saw that he was the appointment, I thought it was an excellent pick. And I think he looks like he's doing quite well. Now, just broadly about the State Department. Um, what do you think about the current lack of ambassadors and other senior diplomats all over the world? Is there something going on here? Is it a part of a, a longer-term trend? Hard to say. I'm not on the inside. I don't know all the reasons. Uh, I do think we need ambassadors in those posts. I think Singapore is one, Australia is another. There's a handful of really important countries that have been without ambassadors for a, a fairly significant amount of time now. And I do think we need to get those jobs filled. I don't know what the particular holdups are in some of those posts, and I think a few of them have actually been announced or there are rumors that announcements are coming soon. But what I would say more generally is is that the confirmation and vetting process has gotten longer. It does take more time these days, so you can expect longer pipelines, especially with change of administrations. But, you know, we're now... At the, at the midterm point, and we still don't have seated ambassadors in a couple of important capitals. And, you know, that that is something that I, I do have concerns about at times. If I understand correctly, I think Ronan War's book, uh, War on Peace, uh, suggests that the State Department has been diminishing in influences and resources for a number of years, not just in this particular president's term, and that, uh, yeah, that, that's a bigger part of a bigger issue there. Do you agree with that uh, assessment? And if so, how do how do we navigate around such uh, restrictions and limitations? What I would say is I don't necessarily take the point that influence is waning because, first of all, there are a number of have been a number of very active secretaries of state and senior teams in in the State Department have quite been quite influential on U.S. foreign policy, both Republican and Democrats over the past several years. And second, you also look at what some argue the NSC has taken over and uh, does more policymaking. A lot depends on the president. A lot. Some presidents really like the interagency process where they get everybody around the table. Others like working more point to point with their agencies. Some of that is presidential style. But remember, there are dozens and dozens of State Department uh, secundees, or maybe not dozens and dozens, but a fair amount of State Department secundees over at the NSC making policy each and every day. So there's that point. Finally, I would say on the resource question, I do think it is a, a chronic uh, issue, and I do think it does undermine the State Department's effectiveness. It, it doesn't live up to its full potential because over the course of, I would say, several decades, it it and I used to work on the committee that that would fund the State Department, and my boss, Senator Leahy, at the time, always and working in a bipartisan fashion with then Senator or then Chairman Mitch McConnell, actually of that committee, would always fight for more resources for the State Department. We saw it not just State Department, but I'd say other elements of. Uh, American uh, forward presence, such as United States Agency for International Development, so on and so forth. How, how to fix it? I think there just has to be a, a, a bipartisan consensus around funding the State Department, and you have to figure out a way to make it less of a zero-sum game with the domestic agencies for which it competes funds. Finally, I would also say I do think where you see it 
most noticeably is kind of its operational elements. It's Secretary Powell and then Deputy Secretary Armitage under the Bush administration really made a priority of upgrading information technology, adding money for operations, travel, things like that. And that is a key resource and a key part, the kind of the backbone of the State Department infrastructure that I also think needs uh, more attention. You just mentioned the uh, the NSC, the National Security Council. I believe you served on the National Security Council back in 2008 and 2009, didn't you? Yes. So you are perhaps a, a rare ambassador in that you've really you've worked both sides of that equation, right? You've worked on the, uh, the, the security side, the military side. You've also worked on the diplomatic side. Does that give you a unique perspective, you think, on, on just how the, the balance is, uh, sort of the, the, the tug of war between different sides of the U.S. government? I think it helps. There's no doubt. First, I, I think it allows you to interpret some of the messages or behaviors of the different agencies in a way uh, that makes them more understandable. I think that's the first point. The second point is you just develop contacts within Mm. those institutions and the Pentagon and the NSC, you know, a, a lot of my contacts were still there. So it was easy to call people and have informal discussions to find out what the thinking was in the agencies. And then finally, what I would say is I think it allows you to I think it's easier than to work with colleagues in the field who are from different agencies if you have an understanding. But that's that's self-evident. Right. If you've if you have uh, experience rubbing shoulders with individuals, you tend to have a better chance at working together with them uh, when later on in life. So I think it did help. The other thing I would just say that it does it does underscore and it, it brings me back to the the State Department question. What, what, I, what is exceptional that you don't quite realize is across agencies, state, defense, intelligence, treasury, some of the, the, the exceptional talent that the United States government recruits and retains, it's, it's pretty, you get to work with amazing people. And that, to me, was probably the best part of working in those agencies was working with the people. And does that give you hope for the future of the U.S. State Department, particularly here in Northeast Asia? It does. I, 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 think that one of the things is we, we listed some of the challenges mm. that the State Department faces. One thing the State Department, in my view, does very well is recruit. Uh, people are hungry to serve, especially after 9-11. I think that's still out there a little bit. And the State Department has recruited fantastic people, sometimes mid-career people with private sector experience or NGO experience or uh, with, with language and, and cultural experience. And so it really does give me hope for the future that what the State Department is doing right uh, among the things it's doing right is really getting some great human capital and talent. And then I think it's incumbent upon all of us who care about the State Department, whether it's private citizens or government officials or people who work in the Congress or or advocate on behalf of the State Department, is to try to help resource the department uh, so it has the the funding it needs to do its job and to 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 harness the the true talent of these fantastic men and women that it's uh, recruited into the system now last year when we had no amba- u.s ambassador here in korea and there were several other uh, senior positions that were uh, unfilled t- tensions with north korea were super high uh, you might remember almost literally a year ago now uh, do you remember a time when you were ambassador that tensions were almost or at least comparably high Yes, the 2015 incident where there was an artillery exchange at the demilitarized zone. I had finally uh, decided to take a vacation. Uh, in, Timing. Uh, exactly. And that's exactly when it happened. And it was interesting because General Scaparotti and I, there were some tensions and we said, well, should I go? Should I not go? And we finally decided to, for me to go. 
And I showed up and I was having, for, again, for the first time in, in my tenure here, I'd gotten out of uh, Korea and gone back to the United States, was having a wonderful time in Vermont with my parents. They had uh, met my son for the first time. Mm. And lo and behold, the phone starts ringing off the hook. And back back I came to the, to the peninsula lickety split. Was there ever a moment when you thought the U.S. might make a kinetic move to take out a U.S. missile, sorry, a North Korean missile or a launch site or a test facility or anything? No, I, you know, obviously I'm not going to comment on military planning or operations or the intelligence community, but, you know, I never felt uh, that that was uh, imminent and it would, it would have showed up in travel warnings. It would have showed up in, you know, dependent departures. It Mm. would have shown up in all the consular notices that we that we were required to send out. And remember uh, that there's no double standard. Uh, we, we have a no double standard policy within the United States government. That what does that mean? Would, would, would you, if there are actions that would particip- pre- precipitate United States employees from leaving post mm. or dependents not coming, you have a duty and you have to inform the American citizens also who are affected by this. So it's always a good thing to, to, to read consular notices when you're traveling abroad, but it's especially when you're coming to Korea. And mm-hmm. if you're concerned about tensions, carefully look at the uh, the consular notices that are put out by the, the embassy. Oh, okay. So if they say, reconsider your travel to South Korea, for example, uh, then it's probably a good idea not to come. Yeah. I mean, take consular notices seriously. There's, uh, I will just final point, and it sounds like an advertisement for the State Department, but what I would say is there's a lot of thought and deliberation that go into these notices. The people who work in consular affairs in embassies are among the very best public servants we have in the United States government. As ambassador, to what extent do you get coordination with or information from the U.S. military here in Korea? I mean, would you have known in advance if anything were going to happen? Deeply. We're deep, we, we coordinate deeply together. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have obviously we have a defense attaché at the embassy who's one of his principal jobs is to be a liaison with the United States Forces Korea. And then obviously, uh, General Scaparotti and I, General Brooks and I uh, worked very closely together. And that's not just the four star. I would work with then uh, Lieutenant General Champeau, who's then 8th Army Commander, uh, Lieutenant General, then Lieutenant General O'Shaughnessy, who has since been promoted to full general, who uh, was in charge of the Air Forces here in Korea, and obviously the uh, the One Star Admiral. It, it's a very integrated team between the embassy and the military component here in Korea. Now, if you'd been here in 2017 when there was talk of bloody nose strikes and things, how would you have handled things as ambassador? Well, I mean, I just think the most, the, the fundamental part of being the ambassador is alliance coordination. And yeah. ensuring that there's effective communication. You know, as as ambassador, you tend to be less of a policymaker and more of an implementer. And accordingly, one of the most important things is to make sure that there is as much policy coordination between the United States uh, and uh, the Republic of Korea, number one. And number two, ensure that there is effective communication. Mm. Uh, and I would say, finally, even if there are disagreements uh, on policy, because you're, you're two countries, you're never going to agree on everything, and it would be weird if you did, quite frankly. Mm. Uh, but to make sure that those that the reasons behind the disagreements are fully explained, that the other side's voice is heard and communicated back to Washington. So, if if I were here, then I think you know, job one 
job two, job three is uh, effective uh, coordination, communication, uh, and explanation. What's your take on the, the current state of play between the U.S. and North Korea? We've certainly come a long way. And you know, there was that time only a month or two ago that uh, Donald Trump wrote that he and Kim were in a kind of a bromance love affair with each other. How, how, are you, how do you see things right now? I think it, it's, there is no doubt that the paradigm of these three leaders meeting is new, interesting, and has changed the dynamic in one sense. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, you have seen, I think, a very traditional playbook by the North Koreans rolled out. What has been different, I think, has been the reaction of the United States president uh, in changing some of this dynamic. And I think the next moves feel, it feels to me like the North Koreans need to make a, a, a one or two moves, I think, if this is if this momentum, so to speak, yeah. is to continue on. Final point I would just say, you know, because we could talk all day on this question, I think the next you know, three to nine months are going to be critical. We're at we're at a we're at a moment here where we've clearly reached a lull in this uh, summitry. Yeah, the the U.S. side has clearly articulated it wants to see uh, a little more progress on some of these denuclearization issues, or at least talks uh, at the at the uh, special representative level about some of these issues uh, before moving forward. And how that gets adjudicated. Uh, between the United States, the DPRK, and obviously with with uh, our allies, the Republic of Korea, is going to be critical. So I think we are at a bit of an inflection point, uh, and it's going to be really, really interesting to watch over the next three to nine months. Yeah, I was at a, a conference or a seminar recently in which somebody said, and I wish I could remember who, uh, said that uh, while North Korea seems to be quite willing to meet with the United States on a political level, so sort of leader to leader, you know, the, the big, pic, big uh, you know, media friendly kind of stuff, not so willing to meet with the U.S. on the, the quieter working level stuff, uh, you know, the special representative you mentioned or uh, or with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo that visit was cancelled recently in New York. So there seems to be a bit of a bifurcation there in terms of the levels that they're prepared to meet at and, and, and what that means for actual concrete progress. I think that's a fair statement. And uh, if, you, if you take a, a dim view of the North Korean behavior, uh, you can argue that they want the benefits of the legitimacy and the prestige that the United States presidency bestows uh, upon these meetings uh, without doing uh, the work that's required uh, in in other or live up to their commitments and obligations under a number of a number of uh, international you know UN Security Council resolutions, the Inter Korean uh, document back in the early '90s, so on and so forth. What I do think the other as a practical matter. Mm. Not meeting at the special representative level, and I think to That's a, a Stephen Began? Stephen Began, exactly, and to a lesser extent the Secretary of State level, it really does inhibit some of these technical talks that could be used. I think to make make progress in finding some creative solutions and finding some uh, cracks and seams in which to make uh, to, to move forward that could unstick. Uh, the logjam uh, that exists. Final point, I'm not saying that summits aren't important. I'm not saying that top-down diplomacy isn't an interesting concept and worth trying, but you probably on balance need both. Uh, mm. And doing one is fine, but both a uh, both-and equation is uh, pretty important here. 
Is denuclearization of North Korea a feasible goal and will it be achieved? I mean, my take is, first of all, it has to remain a policy goal. There's no doubt about it in my mind because of the nonproliferation uh, you know, consequences of allowing uh, North Korea to uh, acquire, obtain, and retain, uh, acquire and retain nuclear weapons. Is it a realistic goal? I think it's it's a goal that can be achieved, but over a longer time horizon than many have expected. And I think if I were still in government, first priority would be to get a freeze. A second would be to get a rollback. And then over time, as you build confidence, you deal with an end game that would, you'd go from a small number to zero. Uh, so I think What's at a minimum here, it's important to, I think, continue to press for the goal. Moreover, the North Koreans have said, or at least according to all of these press reports, that they're still committed to that, to denuclearization. Now, what obviously there's a long and tortured history on the definition of denuclearization and all that comes with that. But I do think that over the long term, freeze, rollback in a phased process, which many experts have talked about, continues to be a realistic goal and continues to be a goal, a uh, policy objective of the United States, in my opinion, should continue to adhere to. So you're not much of a fan of the John Bolton view of just send a ship and fill it up and take it away? Well, if if that is possible, let's do it. You know, that that's a good problem. That would be a very good problem to have. Uh, and, you know, there's no doubt People point to the, the Libya experience of a, of a quick, in a, an issue where this was done relatively quickly. But I think most technical ex- experts say that the program is much bigger, much more complicated, much more diverse, and it's just going to take a longer time as a practical matter. Looking back, do you think the American government should have changed its stance on the six-party talks? I mean, uh, was the U.S. wrong to continue to try to revive the six-party talks long after it was clear they were dead? I was always a fan of the, the six-party talks. It doesn't preclude you from talking bilaterally. Uh, you know, President Obama said he would on the camp as early as uh, the Democratic primaries would reach out and talk to the North Koreans bilaterally. So it, does, it certainly doesn't preclude bilateral discussions from happening. And it has a mechanism to bring everybody together. And I think finally, as a practical matter, which you end up doing anyways, consulting with the other five parties uh, as you go. So having a structure and a mechanism uh, and a process there is... Uh, I think, uh, generally, net-net, a good thing. But then what is it that stopped them from, you know, with, with all this uh, this goodwill from Obama and uh, with, as you say, that coordination is going to happen anyway, what stopped it from getting started again? Well, first of all, remember, people sort of glaze over the fact that the president, President Obama, under his administration, there was a deal. It was the Leap Day deal, right? And people forget that 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 happened. Then I think what you probably had, and this is an oversimplification and many of our listeners will uh, correct and amend uh, my statement, I'm sure. But basically you had a a power transition going on in uh, North Korea and a consolidation. And as a practical matter, the North Koreans during that period were just not interested in talking. Look at the record. Uh, They had the worst relationship with the Chinese in decades. They didn't take Prime Minister Abe up on any kind of talks about abductees. They walked out of the inter-Korean talks in 2015. Uh, Kim Jong-un canceled his trip to Moscow in 2015 as well. So the, the Obama administration, and doesn't, I'm not saying people don't disagree on the policy of these talks, but there's no doubt President Obama was committed to talking to countries that were seen as adversaries or engaged in problematic behavior uh, in the past, Iran, Cuba, Myanmar, mm. so on and so forth. So so look at it in context. The yeah. data generally point to one one way. And 
that Kim Jong-un and his regime in North Korea were not overly interested in deeply meaningful talks during that period of time. Actually, just from the, uh, bouncing off that point, uh, some people on this podcast uh, and elsewhere have said that perhaps the reason that North Korea talked, that Kim Jong-un talked with President Moon and President Trump this year was simply because he was ready. He felt that his, uh, his nuclear and missile program had been advanced sufficiently, that he was now ready to come and talk to people, not because he was scared into it, but because he felt confident enough. It's a fair point. People who know a lot more about North Korea than I, uh, I think, you know, make a lot of different arguments here. I think many of them sound reasonable. I'd say first, some people argue he basically had gotten where he needed to get uh, on all, many elements of his nuclear program, nuclear missile program, stopping short of perhaps announcing, uh, or not not announcing, but tests that would, at least in the U.S. eyes, give a lot of confidence that he was ICBM capable, right? So he had this little bit of delta, but a pretty sophisticated program. Oh, by the way, the program's still growing, uh, as, as we know. But he felt, I think, that he perhaps had enough in that space where he had some negotiating leverage. Other people argue, and it's not mutually exclusive, that the sanctions began to take a toll. Uh, and third, some argue that you know he had done his internal consolidation of power, uh, sanctions taking hold, uh, program big enough, and it was time. And he perhaps felt that the uh, with a, a liberal government in the South, a, a, a Republican in the White House that had said some interesting things on North Korea uh, during the campaign, including eating a hamburger together. Perhaps that was part of the calculations. Look, I've heard these arguments back and forth. (laughs) They all sound really, I mean, they're all based in a lot of reason and logic. And I tend to subscribe to the fact that it's probably a multivariate equation and probably a lot of these variables at work that uh, got Kim Jong-un into a position where he was ready to talk. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the uh, Korea-U.S. alliance the Chorus Alliance, under the, the, the current circumstances in which South Korea and North Korea are talking a lot more than North Korea and the U.S., is there daylight? Is the, uh, how's the alliance? How's it going? Is it still ironclad? I think the alliance is in, in good shape. It's in great shape. It, it's, it's a resilient alliance, and people want to sort of point out disagreement on X or disagreement at Y means crisis in the alliance. Like I said, there's always going to be disagreements and back and forth, and because you've got two countries that are, are different. Mm. And like I said, it'd be weird if you didn't have disagreements. I think the, the question going forward is how are these disagreements handled, right? I mean, I think this could go one of two ways. I mean, you could see much more solidarity or you could see disagreements pop up in the alliance and how it is handled, I think, is going to be an important indicator. But for the moment, I think things are, are fine. They're good. I really liked the uh, the idea of the working group that was set up uh, between the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the State Department. You look at Ambassador Harris, his work here, and you look at Steve Began, who's been out here many, many times to consult and coordinate with allies. So I do think it's in good shape. It doesn't mean there aren't challenges ahead. It doesn't mean we can't be vigilant. But people often in foreign policy circles in Washington, especially, and I would say arguably counterparts in capitals, don't get enough credit for alliance management. Mm. And everybody wants to, everybody sees the big negotiations with, you know, these North Koreans or so on and so forth. But undergirding that, sort of the load-bearing weight of the foundation 
are these people who work tirelessly every day on alliance management. So those though that group of folks, uh, men and women serving across an array of agencies in the United States and South Korean government are going to be critical uh, in the days, months, or weeks, months ahead. Yeah, and as I've just pointed out, many of those people in alliance management are not even military. Even though when we think of an alliance, we think of you know military to military talks and 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 uh, working together to fight a common foe. Uh, actually, a lot of it comes down to the level of. Uh, of, of diplomats uh, working together, right? Exactly right. I mean, first you you take start from the standpoint of you want your intelligence uh, folks working together to get a common threat assessment. Mm. So you try to understand the problem. You have obviously you mentioned you have your military to military talks. Uh, don't forget about the the good the good civilians uh, who I accounted among my colleagues when I worked at the Pentagon. The good folks at uh, what we call OSD policy, uh, who often do a lot of this uh, management. Other civilians in the Pentagon as well, diplomats, and then I would argue also every bit as important is our our, our folks who work on the economic pieces and some mm-hmm. of the other uh, associated uh, elements of the relationship. So free trade agreement goes in there too. I I think the the FTA is the what we call the chorus FTA yeah. is one of the key pillars of this relationship. So uh, absolutely, economic issues are. Mm-hmm paramount, important, and critical to this relationship and alliance. Do you see U.S. troops still stationed in Korea in 2068, 50 years from now? You know, who knows what the world is going to look like, but I think every indication so far has has been that there is an appetite and willingness among the, the, the politicians and political class and people of the Republic of Korea to have the United, United some United States troop presence here for the foreseeable future. I guess what I would say also to that is you look at um, statements out of the Moon Jae-in government that have basically said the alliance is for things other than North Korea, not just limited to North Korea. Uh, You look at the the buildup of Camp Humphreys, a $10 billion uh, base, which the Koreans paid between 92 and 96 percent of that. I mean, all of these things suggest durability and viability over time. And I I think probably the most important thing that I didn't mention is popular support continues to be high for the military mm-hmm. part of the alliance. So uh, taken together, asking me to predict the future, and <laughs> if, if I could, you know, I'd probably be a, a wealthy person because I could play the stock market a little better. But what I would say <laughs> is... Uh, is that this, the, the indicators and the foundations are here for a long, durable, lasting presence. Totally different topic here. The uh, Kaesong Industrial Complex, that was uh, shut down by the South Korean government while you were here. Could you just tell us from your recollection, how did that come about? And was that a win for, uh, for U.S. policy, as far as you were concerned? Well, you made the point earlier, we talked a little bit about how, not misunderstood, but under- I think undervalued, for lack of a better term, the salience and the dynamics of the inter-Korean relationship is in Washington, and that was, you know, a, 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 a decision taken by the government of Seoul. We we obviously we welcomed the decision, and I think there were issues about you know the hard currency and and how the money was going to be sent, but on balance. What I would say is that this was a sovereign decision by the government of the Republic of Korea. But I think the U.S., correct me if I'm wrong here, also had some um, some issues with the potential of goods made in Kaesong Industrial Complex ending up on the South Korean market and perhaps in the U.S. covered by the the Chorus FTA. I, I'm trying to you're you're testing my the limits of my memory here. Oh, sorry. Uh, so, uh, I can't remember that. Let, let's put it. This was not an issue that I dealt with front mm. and center every day on Kaesong. I think. Principally, it was the issue was, you know, first, it, it's it is there's this is a decision 
for the Republic of Korea. This is an inner Korean issue. This is not uh, a U.S. issue, and it was not an issue we put pressure on. Everybody sort of, that was, I should have mentioned this up at the top. Everybody always said, well, the U.S. is always pressuring the South Koreans and the uh, all of that. And, uh, you know, they're just it, the, the dynamic when I was here just was not like that. It was very collegial. It was it was a full partnership. And I can say that un- unequivocally. So there wasn't pressure. The U.S. wasn't, you know, badgering or, or doing something of that nature to to close Kaesong. I do think that why the decision was made is that there were just ongoing decisions about the hard the ongoing issues and concerns about the hard currency that was going to be generated up there in the context of very little talks underway, if no talks underway, the the program growing. And I think it was part and parcel of a bigger international move that you saw on the multilateral stage to increase sanctions uh, during that time. Now, if South Korea and North Korea next week come up with a, a statement that, look, we've agreed to reopen Kaesong, we've talked, we've worked it out, we're going to reopen Kaesong, but this time, instead of using U.S. dollars to pay for things, we're going to be using just South Korean won, uh, which the North Koreans can use to buy South Korean products. And uh, uh, would the U.S. similarly, you know, would you imagine that the U.S. would be uh, would take the line that you've just uh, taken, which is it's an inter-Korean issue, it's not our issue, it's okay? So you're again testing my. Now you're testing my sanctions knowledge here, which is an arcane and critical part of of the knowledge base. And there are some people in Washington who follow sanctions closely who are really, really good at this. I am not one of those people. I listen to their advice. I, I follow them uh, on social media and, and listen to all of their the good stuff they put out. But as I recall now, and your listeners will correct me if I'm wrong. K-Song Send emails is- to podcast <laughs> at nknews.org. That's, that's right. That's right. Uh, as I recall now, I think this the, the multilateral sanctions have kind of layered over. So you have to get multilateral sanctions relief in order to restart K-Song as a, as a practical matter here. Since K-Song was closed, the international community has you know put on pretty aggressive sanctions that I think a lot of people argue, as we talked about before, have been instrumental in bringing Kim Jong-un, or at least the North Koreans, to the table if not making them more willing to engage in some sort of back and forth and to reopen Kaesong at that time, you know, I would speculate and I'm not in the government, I think would uh, cause some political consternation and at least require some pretty deep consultations between mm. Washington and Seoul. Looking forward then, uh, the next couple of years, the Korean Peninsula, will you continue to visit the Korean Peninsula? Absolutely. I mean, this is... Uh, this is this this issue set is near and dear to my heart. My kids were born here. We've yeah. got all sorts of friends here. You know, I, there are so many elements of Korea, the Korean Peninsula that I love, uh, hold dear. So, absolutely, we'll be back a lot. Mainly, uh, of course, not mainly, but of course, uh, especially so during baseball season. Uh, you know, huge uh, Doosan Bears fan. So, uh, I'm already think I'm already excited about uh, next season. I'm watching with interest that the. That Doosan did not retain its catcher, Young E.G., and uh, I'm worried about how we're going to fill that gap. He's a critical hitter in the lineup, a leader on the team. But I, you know, I have my un, unflagging, un, undying love for the Doosan Bears will continue. Well, actually, that was a question that a, a friend of mine suggested I ask you, but I declined to put down in the script. But now I guess I can throw it out there. Uh, 
His question was something like, do you really like South Korean baseball or is this just a crass public diplomacy? And I guess given that you're no longer a public diplomat and you still go on and on about Korean baseball, you're really a fan. Yeah. And uh, you're very committed. You, you, yes, that is not a crass uh, diplomatic <laughs> thing. People who would say it's a crass public diplomacy thing. Let, let me turn the equation around and say, <laughs> even when I was ambassador, it is probably one of the only jobs in the world where you get to go watch baseball, a sport that I love eat chicken, drink beer, and call it advancing U.S. national security interests. So uh, um, so let me flip that. and But also say, uh, to, to, to continue that thread, I wake up virtually every morning in the U.S. and through Naver, watch uh, the KBO games, flip around, uh, walk the dog, walk Grigsby. He's still still with us and uh, watch a little KBO. <laughs> and then saw a slew of games this year uh, and even took some vacation to see a couple of games and come back for the, the Korean World Series. So I will say that if you're willing to sit outside in frigid uh, November weather and mm. watch Korean baseball and endure some of the hottest days. We was in Gwangju mm. this August watching a game. Oh boy, in yeah. And it was a scorcher so much that the mascot was in a swimming pool in center in the behind the center field fence. Um, so anyway, don't get me started on baseball. That's another <laughs> podcast, but it is not crass. It is deep. It is, it is a uh, undying, unflagging love of this sport. Love. Yeah. Would you look forward to any future um, uh, formal role in, in U.S. career relations or, or even, you know, a, a bigger sort of a regional uh, Northeast Asia peace and security thing. If if something were to offer were to be offered to you, would you jump at that chance to come back here again? Well, I'm pretty happy with what I'm doing now. It's been great and it's been a nice transition. And I did U.S. government service for about 20 years. I will say this: I you never say no. Uh, if people told me uh, 15 years ago I would have been the U.S. ambassador to Korea, I would have said that's just, that's just not going to happen, mm. right? And so you you just never know the. the you know, other things I, you know, we could go on here about how I met Senator Obama. You know, I, I didn't even apply for a, a job in his office and a friend recommended it. And we got together. And so you just never know yeah. where the 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 ball is going to bounce. But I would say I'm, I'm really happy with what I'm doing now. It's great to be back in Washington. We do really, really miss Korea. Uh, and that's why I get back uh, really every chance I get. They're long flights. Thank you so much for coming out here. Uh, well, th- we'll leave it at that today. Thanks very much, Mark Lippert, for joining us today. I was delighted to be able to interview you. Ladies and gentlemen, don't forget to check out nkshop.org for all your holiday gift ideas and get 10% off your entire purchase by using the code NKPodcast10 at the checkout. Share the podcast. Send us reviews and feedback at podcast at nknews.org. And many, many thanks to our producers, Arias Dare and Christina Lee. Thanks and listen again next time. <laughs>